Welcome to Coffee House. We just read one of my favorite books so far. That was Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman. It had some incredible stuff in it. It was just a lot of fun to read. So this is our discussion that accompanies our initial breakdown in the book where we go through the contents and everything. This one is supposed to dive a little deeper into some of the ideas that come out of it. So what was inspired by this particular... There was so much. There's so much that we could have gone down. But what I want to talk about is kind of the role of mythology. A little bit, but more to the point of just talking more about the mythology that was built into this book, so it's not going to be as deep and world-reifying as uh, most of my other (laughs) discussions are. So, some mythology is simple, obviously. So, you have something like the story of the woman caught in adultery in the New Testament. That was a story that was added in later iterations of the Gospels. And this particular story, the woman caught in adultery, people should know the basic story. There's a, a woman, she's about to be stoned. The bloodthirsty crowd dons a whole bunch of rocks, and it's only to the intervention of Jesus Christ himself that this particular woman owes her life. And Jesus, you know, he writes in in the stand. There's a bunch of speculation about what he was allegedly writing in the stand. Some thought it was the sins of the people who were around him. I'm not sure how, because he would have had to, like, title it. He would have said, okay, this is for... Peter, you know, Peter Nesbitt, <laughs> you put a line under it, and then you kind of list, okay, you did this and that. And so I'm not sure that he got, you know, that detailed. But then he says, okay, the first of you who has not sinned can cast the first stone. And they all uh, shamefully walk away. Now, this has kind of a straightforward and obvious clue as to what it means morally, that one ought not judge lest ye be judged. Uh, that's a through line in the New Testament, at least. And that that is the purview of the deity, and you ought not step into that. So that has a practical purpose. It's uh, an important idea. It's something that could undergird humility just in general about people saying that, well, maybe I I shouldn't be the one who's (laughs) making these dire judgments about people. And it saves the character of the woman caught in adultery, saying that though unsavory, you know, it might have been, that anybody is capable of redemption, at least has that kind of undercurrent. So that's a, it's a nice story, it's straightforward, it has some morals attached to it, and it's something that you could go apply thereafter. Some mythology is not so clear. <laughs> so, like, uh, in Norse mythology, there was that, the squirrel, what the hell is the deal with the squirrel? There's a little squirrel in Yggdrasil, the tree, the tree of all the nine worlds that connects the nine worlds. And there's apparently a squirrel, I actually looked up the name, but I can't remember the name now. <laughs> I don't think I could pronounce it particularly well anyway. But the little guy was going back and forth between worlds, and apparently he was ferrying messages between the worlds, and he took great pleasure in lying about what the messages were. So what is that supposed to mean? What is the moral that you get to take between those? I mean, you could kind of square some kind of a circle here. If you'd say that the, the squirrel is representative of the fact that there's something lost in translation when you're trying to talk between worlds or something. I don't know, because there, there's a world with a dragon in it. There's a world with giants. There's Asgard. There's Midgard with people. You know, maybe it's something about the mistranslation. I don't know. But still, that's not straightforward. That is not straightforward, Norse mythologies. Talking to them like it's a it's a person, Mr. Norse Mythologies, why are you ta- telling these stories? But anyway, so there are other ones. We can try to pull some kind of moral structure out of some of these other stories that we had previously talked about. You've got Odin. This one, you can actually get something out of this. So Odin, of course, one of the things that he was supremely motivated by is gathering wisdom. He wanted more and more wisdom. 
we start out with the idea of him sacrificing himself to himself. And Norse mythology was actually developed in, I think it was 700 AD or AC. No, not AC, ECE, current era or common era. So about 700 to like 1100 or something like that is when Norse mythology was developed. So this is post-Christ. This is post the development of everything around that, you know, whatever portion of it is mythology versus not. We can at least say some of it is mythology, but... So it was a precursor to this idea of Odin sacrificing himself to himself. And I, we didn't have many details about how that worked or anything. But apparently it, it did something for him. But it's interesting that parallel. And you wonder where that idea comes from. One thing about mythology and human beings and men especially is the idea of self-sacrifice. That is something that, you know, recurs over and over again. That along with things like having to kill the person who killed your father or something like that, you know. So there's there's these built-in archetypes related to it in this sacrifice self-sacrificial idea is probably something that recurs over and over again. But anyway, so specifically from the story of Odin, though, in one instance he gave his eye, you know, this is at the well, he was supposed to give his eye for wisdom. The point was to give his eye so that he could get wisdom. And of course there's a symbology there that you have. He he can't see as well. He only has one eye now, but he can see much better the world in general because he has greater wisdom. So that's a premium cost. He doesn't have the eye for the rest of his life. You know, until he gets eaten by Fenrir at the at Ragnarok, he doesn't have that other eye, but he gains wisdom, and so that places a premium on wisdom within this tradition. It's extremely important. Something else, that, and he goes for wisdom too in another story. I think we'll get to that again, though. But in the other story, when he goes to drink the mead of the poets, it's the mead of the poets and wisdom. <laughs> I can't remember if that's the specific name, but it's both of those things that you get from it. When he seduces that girl, the daughter of the holders of it, and so he's going through all these things just to try to get wisdom. So again, it's, it's saying that it's very important to do this. And then another one that you can pull out of it when it relates to Odin and Loki is cleverness. Cleverness is seen as something that's very important. It's not just the brute strength of somebody like Thor. Thor gets outsmarted on occasion. There was that one story about Thor when he's trying to win at all these tests of his, his abilities. You know, he's supposed to drink all of the ale or whatever out of the thing, and he's supposed to lift the cat, and uh, he's supposed to wrestle the old woman. All those things are tests of his, his kind of physical abilities but he's outsmarted by the people who are using all these illusions to make him fail at those things although in the end it does uh speak something to his physical abilities because <laughs> he was actually doing some incredible things that he didn't realize but so when it comes to odin odin is somebody who uses cleverness but he also seems to be you know strong and capable and warrior and all those things so he outsmarts the woman when it came to getting the meat of the poets he outsmarts fenrir you know when all the gods were trying to figure out what to do about fenrir and they're trying to they make it a game for him it's like oh i'm gonna throw these chains over you and just to see how strong you are and all that stuff so odin uses a lot of cleverness as he goes along and loki especially you know that's something that that's his weapon is the cleverness <laughs> is his brain although it doesn't work out for him a lot of the time you know with the master builder he says that oh we can give him such a short timeline that he won't be able to do it and then we just get the fruits of his labor without having to pay for it but it doesn't work out gets him into some trouble i think the cleverness worked out for in that wedding setting right i mean it didn't necessarily need to because i think all that loki did was try to convince the guy that it was actually freya with the passionate eyes when thor's when thor was cross-dressed and uh the guy looked under the veil and he's like those eyes are terrifying <laughs> and so Loki's like, oh, no, she's just really passionate. Don't worry about it. 
And of course, it doesn't really work out for Loki in the end, but it doesn't work out for anybody at the end. So I don't know if that really... Again, it's uh, throughout this mythology, it's it's not straightforward about to say these are the moral acts. These are the things that you should be doing. Whereas something like Judaism or Christianity, maybe less so for Judaism, there can be some complexities in there. But for Christianity, there's a, a straightforwardness to it where you can see, okay, here's the binary. Here's one way I could go. Here's the other way I could go. And it's telling me to go this way. Uh, so it's much more straightforward. But in Norse mythology, it seems like even when you are clever, it eventually catches up to you. You know, it's not something that you just get to say, oh, great, I was clever, I win. That's the end of that. Uh, most of the time, it catches up to you in some way. What's another moral that we can glean from Norse mythology? Um, that Freya is hot. That's <laughs> that's another one. Apparently, uh, she's got a whole bunch of guys after her. There's the master builder who wants her and is willing to build an entire wall to be able to do that. And and then the Lord of the Ogres, you know, he's going through, uh, he has Thor's hammer and, you know, buried it under the thing. And he's willing to trade that back for, for Freya. So a lot of people were after Freya. So that's an important thing to understand about Norse mythology is that Freya is apparently hot. And one thing, you know, some discussion I saw when I was reading about this was that how the polytheisms, like with the Greek gods and with Norse mythology, they have complex gods. They have gods that are more person-like, that they have their vices and virtues. And there isn't just this uh, setup of, okay, here are the evil ones, here are the good ones, just be like the good ones and fight against the evil ones. There's, there's not that sort of thing. You have a lot of complexity in the way that these gods interact. And somebody like Thor, even, he can be a jerk sometimes and he's kind of dull and doesn't really understand much and isn't especially clever. Odin can, instead of being the perfect all-father who's the giver of life, and I know it's kind of weird because Odin didn't really create the world or anything like that. He was just kind of part of it early on and had a role in the development of human beings. So he's supposed to be the giver of life in that way, but a, very, a much more limited role than something like in a, a monotheistic religion. But in the polytheisms uh, with Odin and with Loki, Loki's not always all bad. He doesn't only do bad things. You know, sometimes he does good things. He tries to help his brother out sometimes. And uh, I don't know, he pleasured that giantess, I guess. That was a good thing that he did <laughs> when he made his kids. So it's not it's not all bad. There's complexities in what the gods do. And so that adds an extra layer. And it might make it so that uh, the people in these mythologies, when they're reading these, that they have a better understanding of how to navigate in a realistic way. I don't I don't know. I wonder what the evolution is and how that works because eventually obviously you get to the monotheisms where it's just no Christ is perfect. He never does anything wrong even though he's depicted as doing some questionable things in some of the apocrypha and even in the gospels. But for the most part, I mean he is just this perfect character, you know, something like when Nietzsche talked about it and which is really important to me long term learning more about what Nietzsche thought about Christianity, it's amazing kind of the initial idea that you get from from just the basic stuff that he says you know the pronouncement that god is dead and and his attacks on the way morality works within christian orthodoxy and the development of uh, protestantism and the catholic church and all those things and all the problems that he has with all that but he actually had some deep admiration for the way that christianity works and and jesus especially and the personhood of jesus so you have that change where in the monotheisms, even though, I mean, it's arguable whether Judaism or Christianity or monotheisms, but in those you have very different characters. Uh, you have binaries of evil and good, and one of which you're supposed to mimic, the other of which you're supposed to challenge and resist at every step. 
So there's this very clear evolution of the way these stories are told. And obviously, historically, one of those won out in an evolutionary way (laughs) is one of those won out. The monotheisms absolutely won out when it came to what survived and what is more important to today in our 21st century, which is incredible. I mean, it's amazing those ideas were so strong that they were able to have roots thousands of years back and get all the way to today. And still have those roots. I mean, even people who claim to not be religious, they still act these things out in ways they don't even realize. And, you know, obviously the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, two of the most important works of just writing, history, literature, anything ever. And you couldn't have a Western civilization, you couldn't have a Western literature tradition without those books. So just absolutely incredible. Those ideas made it all the way through. And you wonder what the appeal was of the monotheistic deities that was so enduring relative to the polytheistic deities. I mean, there are a whole bunch of, I mean, I've got all, all sorts of reasons why I think uh, that uh, Christianity and, and the way that it's structured did have such incredible resonance throughout history. But we won't get into that at this point because we're just talking about other stuff. So, and Loki's children, just because I like talking about this, is uh, you wonder what the moral is. <laughs> what is the moral? So Loki, he's got a wife, and he goes and messes around with this giantess, and they have these three kids. These three kids who cause some problems for the world. Uh, you have Jormungandr, the giant snake that encircles Midgard and spits venom and ends up fighting Thor and killing Thor during Ragnarok. Thor kills him too, but, you know, it's a it's a back-and-forth thing. But he's often depicted as eating his own tail, the Ouroboros. So you have to wonder, okay, what does this mean? <laughs> what is the moral of Jormungandr, the snake that encircles the world, who was born from Loki, the trickster god, and a giantess? I, I don't know. I really don't know. And then there's Hel, there's his daughter, who is kind of half alive and half dead, and ends up not just helming the world of the dead, or like the the fairy between the world of the living and the dead, or something like that, but the deepest, darkest place. But she eventually, she raises an army for Ragnarok that Loki uses in the final battle. So what does it mean? What is the moral story around Hell being half alive and half dead? She says she feels like, when she's asked whether she's alive, I believe when Odin was talking to her, she says something to the effect of, you know, I don't know. I don't know which one I am. So you wonder, what is the moral story? What is the idea behind? What are the fundamental things that are coming out of the story of Hell being half alive, half dead? And uh, being the daughter of Loki and what she does, I, I don't know. I don't know what the significance of it is. And then Fenrir. Fenrir's wolf, the, the giant wolf who is chained until Ragnarok by the gods. There's a little bit more meat to this one because you have the gods who are terrified of Fenrir's power, of what he can do, what he's capable of doing. So they chain him, you know, three times. They try to get him chained down. So they don't have to worry about it, but it it comes back literally to bite them. And he, at Ragnarok, you know, he's supposed to eat the sun and eat the moon. He wreaks all this chaos all over the place, and it was just his revenge. He gets his vengeance on Odin, the All-Father, and giver of life, and, and takes his life. And so again, you have to wonder, what is the moral story? What is the ethical framework that is coming out of the idea of Fenrir and the story of Fenrir? and who he is, and what he does, and what the gods do, how he's responded to. What are we getting out of that? What are we learning about the world and about ourselves? 
It could be, you know, something psychological. Maybe there's something about Jormungandr just being an idea of the the fear of the edge of the world. And so when you're when you're going out into a boat, you know, you don't know where you're going to land and you don't know what's out there, so it's just this this fear of the around the edge of the world that there's something out there lurking. And hell could just be representative of all of us, is that we all have one foot in the grave. We all are heading that direction. It's terrifying. And so she could just be something about that. And then Fenrir, I don't know, this latent potential that is there, that it can be released at the end of times and wreak all of this havoc to the extent of being able to overturn the whole order of things. Having that kind of power within and just being ensnared by these tr- these chains. And of course, Fenrir, you know, he is a wolf, but he can, he speaks, he speaks the language and he can speak to the gods and he has a particular personality. He doesn't like to be (laughs) told that he can't do something, that he's incapable of doing something. He takes specific umbrage at that idea and he's vengeful, you know, by the time we get to the, the end of the whole thing. So, so you wonder. And then of course, when the whole thing unravels, it's burned to the ground. There's the tree, the man, of course, is called Ash and Yggdrasil is apparently an ash tree and the woman's called Elm. And eventually it's all burned to the ground and rendered ashes. And then something grows from out of that, you know, the, the sons and daughters of Thor and other gods, they, they survive and they come back and then we still have humans, you know, the new humans or whatever. And so that that burning down and rebirth thing, of course, that has some kind of meaning and significance with the, I mean, just basic cycles of the seasons and, and that sort of thing, the end of times that eventually lead to another spring. So I don't know. I mean, there are so many awesome things about Norse mythology. I love the way that it's structured. I love a lot of the characters so much. And there's something extra devious or devilish or something like that about all the characters in Norse mythology. Whereas you can see in like Greek mythology, it seems like the character of those representatives of of the the people and the gods, the way that the gods are and what happens between them. There's something about it that is kind of fitted within a different kind of framework, whereas there's something more devious about Norse mythology characters. And this kind of background of of randomness or something, or just there's something else there that is just a little more scary or a little more untethered <laughs> than other sorts of mythology. So anyway, I think I expected to talk for like five minutes and be done with this, but we're, we're over 20 now. So um, I think that's going to be sufficient when it comes to the discussion about Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman. Excellent work, Mr. Gaiman. Loved it. Definitely going to have to go back to some of his other books because he's just steeped in these ideas and I'm sure it comes out in the stuff that he actually makes himself when it comes out of his imagination. As always, thank you very much for listening. The next book I said for sure I would have the next book (laughs) named by the time I did this and I know which book I'm going to do. But we've got the Oresteia. The Oresteia is is coming up from the literature perspective. So the next one, okay, yes, I found it. It took me a while. But I found it. The next one is going to be Gates of Fire. It's actually, I think it's written by somebody who's in the military or something like that. I was listening to, I think it's Tim Ferriss's podcast, and he was talking to a couple of fellas in the military, and one of them mentioned this book. But it's an epic novel of the Battle of Thermopylae. So I thought that sounded great, and we're going to do that. It's a good summer read, so we're going to do that one next. It's called Gates of Fire, again, written by Stephen Pressfield. 
So hopefully it's good. I have not started it. I have no idea what the writing quality is or anything like that. So venture into it at your own peril. Uh, but otherwise, thank you again, obviously, for listening to this thing. I hope you enjoyed the book as much as I did, and I hope to see you on the next one. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs>